We at The Daily Brew take the Bible and the study of it very seriously. Have you ever wondered where we or our special guests go when we want to dive into God's Word more deeply? We go to Logos, the best Bible software available. From in-depth word studies in the original languages to commentaries from scholars, both new and old. There are lexicons and grammars and sermons and collected works of heroes of the faith, and even ancient texts for the serious Bible students. Never before has so many great tools been bundled together into one software. To learn more about this incredible ministry, call 888-390-7341. That's 888-390-7341. While you're there, go ahead and tell them that you heard about this incredible software on The Daily Brew. You are busy. You are always on the go. But are you making time for you? The Y is dedicated to helping you stay active, live better, and find the best possible version of you. From basketball courts to functional training space, indoor pools, and yoga studios, the best of Knoxville is right in your backyard. Group classes and personal trainers that will challenge and encourage you. The Y has something for everyone. Join the Y and get unlimited access to all five locations. From the heart of downtown Knoxville to Farragut and Halls, all with no contracts. For a better us. This is The Daily Brew. Years ago, uh, in my first church, there was a, a guy, lovely man in my congregation, who was uh, uh, really nearsighted. And, and I knew that he w- wasn't entirely happy with everything that was happening in the church, and there was a lot of history that you know, predated me. And I was a young preacher and you know, anxious to, to do things right and to try to stay out of trouble as much as possible. So I'm, I'm preaching away week after week, and I noticed that you know he was giving me this really sort of funny look. And I, and I was thinking, well, I know, I, I can imagine he didn't like last week's sermon, but this sermon should be right up his alley. He should be happy with this. But I'm still getting the same funny look. And uh, I couldn't figure out what was going on. And um, finally, come to find out, as we say back home, that uh, it, this uh, funny look had nothing to do with me. He was really, really nearsighted. And he couldn't see. <laughs> so... He was, his face was all screwed up, if you will, you know, all sort of squinted up. He was just trying to see me. He, he, wasn't, he, he wasn't making faces at me at all. So that was an important lesson. I learned that it really isn't about you, idiot. Just do your job, trust the Lord, and don't imagine that everybody's hanging on your every word. That is an amazing story and a very helpful reminder. Let me start off with a confession. Before I went to Bible college... I hated reading. The thought of it bored me. I'd rather be outside playing some type of sport or spending time with people, doing something, going to the movies, something of that nature. I couldn't stand reading. So one of my first semesters in Bible college, uh, I had a church history professor who forced us to read biographies. And he also lectured in such a way that it really captivated my mind. 
And from that point on, I started trying to take him for every single class that I had. Dr. Brand, if you're out there, uh, I'm talking about you. Since that time, I've really turned into a bookworm. Um, I read any chance I get. I love getting books. Um, I find it therapeutic to go into bookstores. I love the old book smell. But church history is the thing that helped me fall in love with it. And it's something that uh, I'm still very much in love with today. So it's a joy today that we get to talk with uh, R. Scott Clark. He's professor of historical uh, theology and church history at Westminster, California. This man is very passionate about church history. Uh, Dr. Clark, thank you so much for joining our show. Hi, guys. Good to uh, be with you. One of the first questions I want to start off with is, uh, Dr. Clark, why do you think it's important for us, uh, for the church, to study church history? It's vitally important for Christians to study church history for the same reason that it's important for people generally to know their own uh, family history. I mean, as you mature, you know, as a child, you know, you probably don't really care who your great-grandparents were or great-great-great-grandparents because the world sort of rises and, and the sun rises and sets on you. But as you mature and you realize that you're not really the center of the universe, that there were other people before you, and that they helped make things the way they are, you begin to show some interest in other things, which is, I think, one of the basic markers of maturity. And so so it is with Christians. You, you, you want to develop some awareness of your family history. And uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm in my uh, mid-50s, and I'm interested in my family history. My wife's doing some genealogical research in, in her family, and uh, it, it explains some things, right? You get to know your relatives, and you realize, oh, that okay, that, expl- that explains why this is the way it is, or this person is the way they are, or why this episode happened the way it did. And the same thing is true for the church, right? We are uh, getting to know the family in which or into which we have all been adopted. Right? The only natural son is Christ. He's God the Son incarnate, the eternally begotten Son of God. The rest of us are adopted sons. And so we've been adopted into this uh, family that existed uh, before us uh, biblically since you know God said to Adam, I'll, I will send a, uh, a Savior. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And the people of God uh, were gathered under Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets. And finally, uh, our Lord had disciples and, and so forth through the New Testament, the, the gathering of the church we see in the book of Acts, and we see it reflected in the epistles and so forth. And, and then there's the whole history, extra-canonical or post-canonical history of the church, the patristic period, roughly the first four or five centuries, the medieval period, uh, from essentially the sixth century through the or into the sixteenth century, the Reformation period, the sixteenth and seventeenth century or so, and then uh, depending on how you want to divide it up, the period of Protestant Orthodoxy, uh, late sixteenth uh, through the seventeenth, early eighteenth centuries, and then modern church history um, after uh, after the eighteenth into the nineteenth and twentieth and tw- even twenty first centuries. That's all family history. Those are all our people: the Eastern Church, Western Church and all through the history of the church. And there are, things are the way they are. We say what we say. We think the way we think. We think the way we think um, because we're part of that history. And so you really can't understand yourself. You can't understand your church or the church. And uh, it's really vital, I think, to read the scriptures with the church. 
we might tend to think as American evangelicals that we're the first people to read the Bible, and of course we're not. The Church has been reading Scripture uh, from the very beginning, and uh, so we need to read the Scripture with the Church and learn with the Church and from the Church. Obviously, Scripture, as Protestants, we want to say Scripture norms all other authorities. It's got the sole you know, magisterial or ruling authority, but uh, we are not alone as we read it. And one of the things that does for us, one of the benefits of reading the Scripture with the Church, is that we have an opportunity, if we'll take it, not to make all of the mistakes that everybody made before us. And, of course, that's something that you see throughout the history of, of the American Church, particularly since the early 19th century, is that we've tended to remake many of the great uh, mistakes that the uh, Church has made in earlier times. And, uh, and and maybe that's just the way it is. Maybe it's unavoidable. But uh, as a historian, I like to think that if we paid attention to the past, maybe we could avoid some things. I mean, just on the surface— if, uh, if you know that, you know, three people have been killed on this curve when you go around it in the last three weeks, that's history. It's recent history, but it's history. And if you're a sane person, well, that will influence your, your behavior, won't it? You'll slow down a little bit, you know, accelerate coming out of the curve rather than into the curve, and, and you'll adjust a little bit in light of history. It's a dangerous curve. So I think this thing, I think the same thing is true for the church, uh, in the life of the church, uh, in our theology, our piety, and our practice. Mm, that is very helpful. Um, another question similar to that that we had in regards to church history would be, um, what are some practical ways that you found? I know that uh, obviously you're a professor at a seminary, but you've also taught in the local church. Uh, what are some practical ways um, you found to teach uh, church history in the local church or at the, the lay level? Well, one of the ways I like to learn history, just generally, whether it's church history or anything else, is um, to read biographies. Um, sometimes traditional church histories, uh, and by that I mean those that be- were written in the 19th century and maybe the early 20th century, tended to focus on institutions. And that's important, right? Um, the church has institutions, and there, there is an institutional church. And that those are important things. They, they shape us in many ways. And and so that I don't mean to disparage that, but reading institutional history, you know, a denominational history or an overview of various denominations can be a little abstract. And so I like to look at particulars, right? And um, one way to do that is to read biographies. Uh, so I'm reading the life of a particular person, and it's in a time and, and it's in a place, and that gives me a handle, a, a, an avenue, a window. Uh, some way of getting hold of a particular time. And then I can sort of build from there, and I can go on and read a little bit more about that time, that place, and sort of fill in the story. But I have a place to start. So I I think that's useful to find good biographies. Uh, For example, um, I think, um, well, uh, Daryl Hart is a a favorite writer of mine. His biography of John Williams and Nevin is very uh, well done. Uh, I think... uh, uh, John Meather's biography of Cornelius Ventil is particularly well done, I, uh, and I recommend that highly. And uh, and then one of my favorite uh, religious biographies in the last ten or fifteen years is um, the biography uh, 
Oh, George Marsden's biography of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, that is a marvelous piece of work. And again, th- these are not recommendations necessarily of the theology of the people who are being described, but just you know, really well-written books that help us understand a time and a place, and then obviously a, a person. Uh, so there are lots of, of good biographies. I tend to look for uh, works that are... Um, well, uh, let's say not adulatory. There's a, a technical word for that. They're called hagiographies, where you know the rough spots are sanded down a little bit, and a person is sort of made to look uh, maybe a little better than they really were. And uh, because I'm an Augustinian, I'm Reformed, I know that people are not necessarily utterly sanctified in this life, and, and so I'm not surprised when they sin. It's not that I'm interested in the lurid details, but I want a realistic representation of the person that I'm about whom I'm reading. So, for example, I, I know people have been critical a little bit of Harry Stout's biography of George Whitfield. Well, I found it very helpful, very illuminating. I thought it was very well written. So, you know, I could go on and on, but that gives you an idea uh, of, the, of the kinds of things that, that uh, I would look at. Uh, for children, for example, um, uh, Simonetta Carr has done a series of biographies for children. And those are, are great things. I mean, one of the things I used to do as a child is to read biographies of, of uh, presidents and sports figures. And, um, and those things are sort of still in the back of my mind. You know, I have a picture of a time and a place that I got through reading uh, biographies of various people. That is very helpful. I know Jeremy had a couple questions for you about uh, confessions and confessionalism. So I'm going to um, send it over to him and have uh, pass it off to him. So Hey, Dr. Clark. Um, One question I was wanting to ask you is, um, obviously, confessionalism was very important during the Reformation. Um, Could you speak to to how confessionalism, why why it was important during the break with Rome, and just basically why it was important for the Reformers in general? Well, first of all, we should establish what they are. When we're talking about confessions, we're talking about ecclesiastical documents. So these are church documents that were written uh, beginning at the very earliest stages of the Reformation to articulate where the various Protestant churches stood. And when I say various, I mean two. There were only two, really. There were the Lutheran and the Reformed. And uh, and then the other major ecclesiastical body in, in this period is Rome. And then they were, uh, there was a complicated and diverse group of people known as the Anabaptists who um, weren't actually necessarily typically confessional. There was one document from 1527 called the Schleitheim, which represents the people who signed it, but you know, really no, no one else. In contrast, the Lutherans uh, published the Augsburg Confession in 1530, and there were various Reformed confessions uh, published in that same period and even before and after. And all through the 16th century then, and I'll just focus on the Reformed, uh, the Reformed churches published uh, confessions uh, for various uh, city churches and then uh, national, regional churches and national churches. So in my tradition, in the churches where I serve, uh, we hold what are called the three forms of unity, and that's the Heidelberg Catechism, which was uh, written in uh, originally in German and translated into Latin and Dutch and many other languages and published in 1563, and that's a major a catechism. A catechism is a collection of questions and answers. So it was a way of teaching the faith 
to the laity, chiefly the young people, but uh, others as well, uh, grown-ups as well, and, and then used as a basis for the uh, afternoon or the evening sermon, sort of the structure of the, the, uh, the afternoon or the second service, structure of the second sermon on the Lord's Day. That's the Heidelberg Catechism. In 1561, Guy de Bray wrote, and then uh, later in the, in the 66 and 67 and following, the Dutch churches adopted uh, the Belgic Confession. And that's a, a classic Reformed confessional document uh, composed of a series of chapters uh, or articles that summarize the, the, what the churches understand the Scriptures to teach about essential, you know, basic uh, doctrines and truths, and then we hold the Canons of Dort, which was a, a, a synodical ruling by an international Reformed synod in Dort uh, that concluded in 1619 that rejected the Remonstrants or the Arminians, and they had proposed their theses in five points, and so we responded in five points. And then in, in, and then in the middle of the 17th century, uh, the English and Scottish churches drafted and submitted to Parliament the Westminster Confession, and then later the larger and smaller catechisms. So those are the those six documents together make up the major Reformed confessions, and there are others. The the um, for example, the Second Helvetic Confession, which was published in 1566, would be one, and and there were others. So uh, what function the major function that these documents had was to say publicly, this is what the churches, and that's really important, right? Some, sometimes people treat these confessions and catechisms as if they were sort of miniature systematic theologies, and that's not true. Uh, a systematic theology covers things um, even though nobody's particularly discussing them or they're not particularly necessarily important. Um, and a systematic theology is a private document. It's published for people to read, but it doesn't have any public authority or ecclesiastical authority. I, in other words, my colleague Mike Horton has written a great uh, systematic theology, but nobody can prosecute anyone in the Church for disagreeing with, with Mike's opinion about this or that. Whereas, having signed onto the Belgic and the Heidelberg and the Canons, if someone says, well, Heidelberg one is crazy. I don't believe that. Um, you know. Well, then there's a that's something that we could discuss as a church and and possibly take formal action. So they have a different status. So that's that's one thing. It it sets a boundary. That's another function that they have. Uh, so the Reformed churches have confessions. The Lutheran churches have confessions. They have the Augsburg Confession, and then they have the Book of Concord, which is a collection of documents. And so if you agree with these documents, well, then. You are a Lutheran if you hold the Book of Concord or the Augsburg Confession. If you hold one of the major Reformed confessions or, you know, a few of them, then you are Reformed. Um, that's, that's of the essence of belonging to that group. This is who we are. This is how we understand the Scriptures. Uh, this is what we think the Scriptures teach about various important topics, and this is how we intend to practice the faith. Uh, so it has a, an important boundary-setting function. Um, and, and then uh, maybe the third thing it does is it, it is a way of preserving and transmitting the faith. Uh, in, instead of, you know, for example, in some Bible churches, some, uh, you know, sort of independent evangelical churches that may not be connected to the Reformation directly or strongly or may not have a confession, well, the church believes practically whatever the minister says. So you have one minister who holds this view, well, this is what we believe. And then uh, he gets a call or you know, dies or whatever, leaves the church, and the next minister comes and he, he disagrees. He has another view. Well, okay, now we hold this. Um, 
Well, that's not how it works in a confessional church. The minister works for the Word of God in our churches, and uh, and the word and the Word of God is summarized in these confessions, and so. He's just a minister, right? He's not a pope. He's not a bishop. He doesn't determine what we believe. He articulates what we believe, and what we believe is summarized in the, in the confessions. So these are constitutional documents, right? Uh, judges come and go, and if judges are doing their job, they're interpreting the Constitution, they're interpreting the law, and applying the Constitution uh, to various laws to see whether, they're, whether they pass muster or not. The judges are not supposed to be writing law, and they're not supposed to be creating the Constitution, right? They're just interpreting the Constitution. So the confession is something like a constitutional document. Um, the ministers and elders are interpreting the, the Scriptures in light of the Constitution or in light of the confession and uh, using it um, uh, to uh, sort of guide the life of the Church. But they're not creating it. They're not making it up as they go along. That's great. Um, so, so, Dr. Clark, one last question for you. Um, Concerning, um, concerning, let's say, you know, some of the reform creeds, catechisms, what what are some some practical ways you can introduce those to your church members? Um, h- how would you go about doing that? If you had some advice on that, that's a great question, and uh, I think the way to do it probably is by education. First of all, so if you're talking to people who don't have much experience with confessions and catechisms. Um, then they need to be introduced. And so, you know, maybe a series of Sunday school classes or adult classes or something like that would be useful just to say, hey, uh, here's the Reformation. Here are these uh, documents that the churches uh, created, drafted, adopted, and confessed, uh, sometimes uh, at the cost of their own lives, right, as martyrs. Uh, Guy de Bray was martyred in 1567 for holding the Reformed Confession. And many others were as well in the Netherlands and in France. Thousands of people, both in, in the Netherlands and in France, and and uh, many people in, in England were martyred, for example, under Bloody Mary for holding uh, these Reformed confessions. So you can tell a story, you know, you uh, draw people in and introduce them to the history of the Church and then introduce them to the various documents and say, uh, you know, here are some rich resources that you know, perhaps we are, we're not aware of, and I, and I know of cases where congregations, you know, discovered these things and were delighted with them and adopted them, and because they didn't know any better, they simply did what they said. <laughs> so it's a you know that's a great thing when that happens, and so that that's a, a thing. And then you know the way in our tradition that we have done this is that we have catechized our children. So and uh, I'm a big uh, advocate of. Um, uh, parrot, pert, and poet. It's, uh, I didn't invent. That's Dorothy Sayers. Uh, uh, that's her synopsis of classical education. That every child, the childhood development, is in three stages: parrot, pert, and poet. So every child, at a fairly early age, loves to memorize, and you can tell it. Right? You know, you can hear kids mimicking. When they're mimicking, that's a signal they are parrots. They're ready to repeat. Well, what do you do with parrots? You teach them stuff. You, you memorize stuff. So that's when they're ready to memorize the Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And, uh, and so that's what you do with it. You break, you break them up, maybe, the longer answers into uh, smaller bits and do it over a longer period of time. But uh, kids used to memorize these things from beginning to end. And uh, my argument is children are, are 
no more. Our educational system isn't as good as it was a few hundred years ago, but children are natively no more uh, smart or no, no more stupid than they were 400 years ago. There's no reason why they can't do it, and they like doing it. So let your child memorize the, the catechism. You know, obviously, it goes without saying, they need to be memorizing Scripture, and the catechism is not meant to replace Scripture, but it is meant to give them a framework, to give them vocabulary, and that's I'll come back to that. So that, that's what... Um, that's the parrot stage, or what we used to, what we used to in the classical period call, or at least the classical period of Christian education call, uh, uh, grammar. Everybody has to learn the grammar of the faith, and so by memorizing, you're learning the grammar of the faith. And then at a certain point, kids start analyzing what they've been memorizing, and they're emotionally immature, and so they come back at you with smart aleck questions. You probably never did that yourself, I know, and no one's ever done that to you. But it does happen sometimes. I, I have it on authority. And uh, so when they come back uh, with a smart aleck uh, question, they're analyzing what they've been taught. And that's good. They're thinking about it. They're asking, is this really true? Do you really believe this? Does this, does this really hold up? And, and that's, the, that's the pert stage, the smart aleck stage. And that's when you start uh, doing apologetics. Right? And saying, okay, yeah, this is true. We really do believe this. Jesus really was raised from the dead. God really is sovereign. Jesus really is uh, you know, one person with two natures. The Trinity really is uh, one God in three persons. Uh, and, and the Scriptures really are uh, God's holy, inerrant, inspired, infallible Word. All, all of those things. And then uh, the third stage of, of childhood development is the poet stage, when they need a vocabulary to articulate what they believe and, and the Church gives us this vocabulary in the confessions, right? In, in, that's where we learn how to speak. That's where we get the categories. And, and, um, and uh, they give us the, the sort of the framework and the tools by which to articulate. So, you know, you hear, uh, you know, modern contemporary evangelical people using all kinds of language, uh, and they mean well, but uh, it's not the historic language of the Church. It's not always very well thought out, creates problems. You know, we could think of some instances where that's uh, been the case uh, in various ways in the last 25 years. Oh, we could just skip all that and use the historic language of the Church, where we've had uh, time to think about these things for literally hundreds of years, and that language is in the Confessions. So uh, those are ways that you could go at it, you know. So education and then doing it at home, having mom and dad, catechizing the kids. And in the old days, children used to be called up to the, to the front of the church and to stand in front of the church and to recite the catechism, which sounds like a terrifying thing, and it, it's a, it could be a little scary. But, um, and, and, you know, John Calvin used to catechize the kids in Geneva. Can you imagine reciting the catechism in front of John Calvin? That would be incredibly intimidating. <laughs> it, was, it was probably a little intense, but, um, you know, kids survived, and he wanted, it, you know, he wanted it done by age 10. So imagine that. And if you look at his catechism, it's huge compared to, say, for example, the Westminster Shorter Catechism or even the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, the good news is the questions are sometimes really long, and the answers are sometimes really short, like, yes, that is true. Or, <laughs> or yes, teacher. So they were, the answers were not always terribly long, but um, yeah, it was a, it was a substantial document, and it I, is memory sir. If memory serves, it runs maybe to a couple of hundred questions, so a lot longer than the Heidelberg or the Westminster Shorter, um, or any of the other comparable documents.
That's very helpful. We always try to toss in uh, one fun question. Whenever you're not um, working or writing or, or teaching, um, what do you do for fun? You know, that's an interesting question. Um, I'm never sure how to, because it changes all the time. We like to go for walks. Um, I like to ride um, uh, a motorcycle from time to time. Lately, I though my, my passion right now, I guess, if I have one outside of work, is bowling. I've decided, I've taken up bowling. So I'm going to see if I can. Have you got close to bowling a 300? Well, not yet. <laughs> so, but I hope eventually to at least become a, and my goal is to is to become an average bowler. So, but I have a long ways to go. I'm not, and no, I'm not going to tell you what I bowl yet. Jeremy and I have a mutual friend who's bowled a 300. Oh my. Well, good for him. That's not an easy thing to do. I get pretty excited if I get a couple of strikes in a row. That's pretty exciting. I would be happy with getting one or two strikes in an entire game. <laughs> so I'm I'm aiming for mediocrity. Then we'll see what happens after that. Dr. Clark, it has been a joy to have you on our show. Thank you so much for taking time out of uh, your schedule just uh, to chat with us today. I'm happy to be here, guys. Thank you so much for having me. for listening to today's broadcast. We pray that this broadcast will be used to strengthen your faith and your love for the local church. The Daily Brew is a listener-supported broadcast. We exist because of generous donors such as yourself. If you're interested in having your business advertised on our show, please reach out to us through our Facebook page or our website at www.yourdailybrew.com. At pizza. Pizza! Where do we have the Daily Brew go when we want good pizza? Snappy Tomato. Not only is it good, but they also have the Beast, which is great for a church or a small group setting. Bro, bro, Jeremy, I will give you 20 bucks if you can eat the Beast by yourself. On the spot. You're going to lose $20. Matter of fact, Jeremy will give $20 to anyone who can eat an entire Beast in one setting. Okay, maybe you won't do that, but there. Pizza is amazing. It is enormous. There's no way one person can eat it. It is big enough for an entire small group, I know from experience. Well, considering I'm a beast, I think I can take on the beast. Well, several convenient locations such as Washington Pike, Seymour, Hardin Valley, and Farragut, Snappy Tomatoes close by the neighborhood near you. Let